I mean, just to follow up on what Rosma was saying there, um, is that uh, this is actually when we when I presented at uh, the Bosky Farms uh, CIT training, it was just that. It was a really neat deal where we were trying to brainstorm stuff. And I actually asked the, the, the students, I'm going, well, what's, well, you know, what do you run up against? What don't you like when you come see us? And there was just kind of a resounding answer of, uh, you guys don't follow directions. And he goes, it just makes things worse because you won't follow directions. And like she was saying, in my most psychotic mood, I am paranoid. I am delusional. So if you're yelling at me to sit down, uh, it's only going to make things worse. I'm going to get, it's going to make things worse and worse and worse. And so when I asked him, what can you do? I mean, just what do you think? How do you think we make this more successful? One officer actually just jumped right in and he said, uh, well, how about if I asked it, uh, asked it rather than uh, you know, telling you, he said, well, I, what do you mean by that? He goes, what if I asked you to do me a favor? Could you do me the favor and sit down because that's going to be helpful. So that's just kind of a, a little bit of an extension of what Rosie was saying here. My own uh, thing, I, yeah, I've had some bad experiences with uh, with APD. Um, one of them, I don't talk about this one too much yet, but it's uh, one of them was it was during the divorce, and this was prior to me being diagnosed. Um, and my wife wanted to take my son away from me, and my lawyer had said, you know, no, you just you know, there's no custody agreement here. Do not give it. To, do not give your son to her because she'll take off. And uh, so she came over and was pounded on the door and got into my house and was crying like crazy, called the police. And uh, one officer came and started saying, that's her son. He's just really yelling at me. And so I'm starting to get like this. And then she said, uh, the next officer said, well, you know, if you're not going to cooperate, I'm going to call my sergeant. I'm gonna, and the lieutenant eventually ended up kind of coming out to see me. The whole time, they're just like really yelling at me. And I'm just getting like this really kind of pumped up. Uh, to the point where I, I guess I did something a little bit too aggressive for their liking, and suddenly I'm on the floor in handcuffs, and I'm going, how the heck did I get here? Because I had not been diagnosed yet, and I really felt that I was trying to cooperate at that point. Um, so yeah, at that point, some de-escalation de would be really great, and that's actually a, a course that we present with a, with a, uh, Matt here, which is de-escalation, where we can give some ideas of what has worked and you know what what could use some incredible amount of uh, improvement. But what you know, one of the things that I I think really helped uh, one time for me, just talking about and uh, things at work was, you know, I, I was really tired of being ill. I was uh, depressed again, so I just you know I just stripped down. I was naked. I climbed up on the roof of my house and I was laying there monsoon season and saying, uh, you you know. Um, uh, I just want the rain to wash away the illness. I'm sick of this. Maybe the rain will wash away the illness this time. And a couple of officers came out. And again, not really remembering too much of it. Um, but I do remember that there was a kindness to it. There, there was an approachability. And one thing I remembered, and actually it's something I share in the de-escalation quite a bit, is the officers came out and they were trying to make it a collaboration with me. They were trying to go ahead and work with me saying, what do you need? I'm going, what, what do you need in order to get you off the roof? Why are you up there? But there was nothing like really uh, uh, intense about it. I just remember it being very kind and uh, very collaborative. Like they really were trying to help me. Um, and some of it was just the language, very much of the language. And I also remember a bit of the stance, uh, you know, just a really open stance. And eventually I did come off of the, uh, off of the, the roof, which was, you know, very, very helpful for, you know, the neighbors, I think. Maybe I scarred them for life a little bit. But, you know, just, you know, I, I'm not that pretty with my clothes off. But anyway, so, 
Uh, yeah, there's a couple of uh, things I can share. Those so. are great. Uh, those are great. Does anyone else on the network have a question? I've got a question. In in, re in retrospect, Steve, when uh, when do you think you you first manifested some symptoms? Oh gosh, you know, at first I would say maybe end of high school, beginning of college. You know, I was 17, 18, right in that, that area, maybe 16. Yeah, so it was, you know, kind of the typical age, you know, range that where a, a male would actually start showing symptoms. Um, I would, in retrospect, I can see all sorts of things that, uh, particularly on the manic side, that uh, that really kind of indicates just, you know, looking back, well, okay, that very much was manic. Um, you know, one of them was... Uh, you know, I was uh, actually kind of a mix-up, so I was depressed, and I always knew that driving would help me feel better. So I grabbed my poor roommate and said, we're just going to go for a drive. But I was both manic and depressed, you know, just that kind of thing where they're overlapping. You can't tell the difference. And eventually, we ended up in Nova Scotia because uh, – and we had to turn around because there were no more roads that went north. And so and that was kind of – that was – oh, I'm sorry. So I'm talking to him. So anyway, so yeah, that, that was kind of uh, – that, that was looking back. Of course, you know, another one – just looking back at the manic behavior was, um, you know, I convinced everybody in my dorm, on my wing of the dorm, that we should go up to Lemetar. I went to school at New Mexico Tech, and there was this corral I knew about. We just took a whole bunch of, uh, you know, just orange uh, spray paint cans, and on, on any cow that would stand still long enough, we were spray painting Big Mac and training on it. So just, you know, it's, again, it's just in retrospect, there's stuff like that, and it's not stuff I would, you know, the ideas would come to my mind now to just get a little bit of a messed up sense of humor, but I wouldn't act on them now because, you know, it was really the mania that was uh, uh, kind of uh, saying, you know, let's make some bad decisions now. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. So, of course, you know, like you were saying, just starting to fail classes and everything, too. I always excelled at everything, you know, just fairly easily. But suddenly I'm failing classes because I'm too, I can't get up to go to, to class. I was too depressed. So... Yeah. Um, I have a question for you guys. So uh, the seven active listening skills are very important, and we've all been taught those. So I guess what I want to ask you both one at a time is, two, uh, there are two questions. One, what other things beyond those do you think are very important? And then, but the first question is, if you had to pick one sort of characteristic or one thing about interaction, and you may have answered this already, what is the most important Thing that you've come across in police officers that makes for a good interaction. I mean, I'll, I'll give you plenty of time to do this one because I actually know this one. Feeling like the officers are we're out there as a team working together to get me some get me help. That feeling of uh, just the officers coming out and working, wanting to work with me as a team. And you know, the word collaboration is so broad, but it means it's a team effort, and that's that's right. what I think is the thing that's most important to me. Great. So collaboration and feeling like you're there to be helped and part of, they're part of the solution and with you. Right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Russell? Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, I guess um, one of the biggest, like, turnoffs that it will, even if the officer's being super polite to me and being all like, why don't you sit down, you know, being super polite, <coughs> I will notice body language right away. I'm really good at reading body language. So if an officer is very, you know, like, hands across the chest, you know, just, like, frowning at me, 
right away I'm gonna feel like there's something off and I pick up on just people's emotions around me so I'm I'm just like oh this person is being very unsincere and um, not really into what they're doing they're just here because they have to be and they don't really care about my well-being and when you get there um, or when people when the APD gets there they're the ones who are making the decisions that are vital to what's going to happen next so they're even if it's just a CIT trained officer they essentially become my advocate my provider and the person who makes the decision that will impact my life the most and, and sometimes forever you know when you take a look at how much how many of us actually end up going through MDC and that you know 40 percent I think is what we we're talking about hey that shouldn't be part of our treatment so you know incarceration so um, like she was saying, you know, you guys, when you come out there, you're, you're our advocate. You're the ones who are going to be making decisions for us that are going to affect us forever. Uh, you know, particularly when you can turn towards a felony conviction that affects us forever. And one of the things that we really talk about regularly is we don't commit crimes unless we're sick. I mean, you guys only come out and see us when we're in crisis. But, you know, I think you can tell that both of us have been in crisis and you're seeing us right now. You would never know. Um, you know, it's not like we call you up and go, hey, how you been? You fighting a lot of crime? You know, we don't do that. So, it's, uh, so yeah, and you know, the other thing that we talk about, um, you remember that, that last one right there? That, you know, it's just kind of the talking point that we like to talk about? Oh. No. No? Really? No. Because I just forgot it. So, oh. so <laughs> no, I, we'll get to it. I just, you know, Rosma, could, could you follow up and, and maybe about something that officers do that helps you feel like you can communicate better with them or open up? Is there oh, is there something that um, just something that helps me is just um, being relatable, like like yeah. I'm an actual person and not treating me as if I'm my illness because I'm not my illness. I am a person first and my illness is part of who I am. Um, so if you treat me like an actual human being, I'm probably going to cooperate better than if you treat me like I'm this crazy, messed up person who's just like trying to make society evil and do evil things with my evil scepter of... Yeah. Like I'm trying to ruin society, you know, if, if you find me being a lot lizard or something, I'm probably like out of my head manic because I get the hypersexuality component and people oh. don't often see that one in, especially in females or even talk about it. They're like, oh, you're just here to, to be this bad person. And it's like, well, I'm probably psychotic at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, the, the hypersexuality is definitely a, a big sign that, that, you know, we're kind of on the upside of things i mean for me this is not a, a pride thing but down at uh, you know no bragging at all it's actually very shameful when i was down at new mexico tech we had this 49ers weekend and on you know, the space of a day i slept with, with five different girls and you know that that is not appropriate behavior in the least and you know it can lead to some you know other stuff like uh you know if a girl thought i was too aggressive well you know during that mania maybe maybe it becomes a sex crime at that point too so, you know, it can be incredibly detrimental to us. And we don't, we don't really talk about the hypersexuality that much, do we? No. So, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a big symptom of, a, of bipolar. It's a real common symptom. Does anybody else have a question? I had one last question I wanted to ask. Does anybody in the network have a question? Hey, Nils, can you hear me? Yes. Nils, it's uh, Frank Soto, AFD. How are you guys? Good, how are you? 
Good, Are you good, able good. to get a video? Um, uh, no, sir. I, I'm actually on the road, so I, I actually have you on my surround sound. So I've been, I've been listening. I, I did have a question. I, I had a question. Uh, so good morning to everyone, and, and, and thanks for allowing me to be a uh, be a part of the solution. Uh, I had a quick question uh, in regards to identification. So uh, a few years ago, we had an issue AFD did on a call where uh, a patient was not acting appropriate. And uh, it was UNMPD at the time. They had they were roughing up a patient when we got there. Um, when we got in closer to the patient and started really looking at the patient, we we noticed some medical issues. The patient was real sticky and, and, and had a an aroma of uh, a sugary aroma. So we knew, hey, you know, this 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 patient suffering from some sort of diabetic emergency. Took a BGL and then immediately notified PD, hey. You know, stop trying to, you know, physically, you know, restrain this person to the point of that, you know, the patient was pretty much defending themselves and knocking, beating up the police officers. I said, because you don't know what you don't know. This patient is having a diabetic emergency. The BGL was at 20. And instead of going into a, into a coma, this patient just became violent. Uh, as soon as we got the sugar on board, the patient was, you know, apologizing profusely. You know, I'm so sorry. So my question is, is there, would, would the, the two speakers, the gentleman and, and, and the gal there, would you be opposed or is there some sort of identification, uh, something that you could wear that would, that would provide the first responders with a little bit more, uh, you know, a, a visual cue to go, okay, I know that I'm here to help this patient. They have some. They have a mental disorder. They have something on their, you know, a, a necklace or or a wristband. Something that that will let me know. Hey, I know what's going. I, I know kind of what's going on now. This person is, you know, we know we we know this person has a mental uh, disability, and 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 now I know what we need to do. I need to get CIT here or or you know, whatever, but just, I see that some of the biggest issues I think are not the recognition. And so uh, I think the young lady was saying, you know, sometimes we get there and we're, we're too gruff and we're too, well, I've seen this a hundred times before. And I don't think that our guys are truly recognizing what they're seeing. Is there something that we can do to help us identify what we have in order to, to be a better uh, uh, first responder, if you will. So that's my question. Thank you. Oh, gosh, when it comes to the uh, uh, putting on a bracelet or necklace, uh, things of that sort, uh, that's a real touchy subject with peers, individuals with the diagnoses. Uh, some feel that's kind of a tag and release kind of thing. We would have to be entirely voluntary. And I think right. that with the stigmas that are associated with mental health, and mental illness, you're going to find very, very few peers who are going to want to go ahead and put something like that on. Um, so it wouldn't be universal. Um, I think the best way to go ahead and help with the recognition is just to hear stories from individuals like us, our life experiences, because you'll see these type of behaviors and be able to recognize them in that respect. But to actually have me wearing a badge or something, uh, you'd have a difficult time just because that that well, being identified like that would, would not be uh, useful to many people's recovery. Well, I, I don't even I don't even mean a specific badge for mental 
uh, mental illness, but we have like like we have people that wear them for you know severe penicillin allergies or for uh, epilepsy or things of that nature. They're, they're, it's a medical wristband, but it but it immediately when we come onto a scene where someone's wearing a medical wristband, it, it immediately sets off flags going like, okay, this this is normal. This is normally unnormal. So. They normally have an issue where it's bad enough that that they've recognized it and they're giving everybody a heads up of what's going on because it's not normal, if you will. And and, and that's all. It, it, it's not it's not geared towards any specific uh, uh, disease or, or things of that nature. But it just it gives us a heads up of hey, this person's got something, and and hey, we know where to go look to see what we can help them. So that's all I meant. I, I didn't mean a specific mental health badge, if you will. Um, one of the things that I think about when I think about this is um, when we're looking for jobs, it's really hard to find a job and stay stable enough to keep working and keep working. So, and those, you know, those things, those medical bracelets are not cheap. Um, I don't think my insurance would pay for it, especially since I change meds quite frequently actually. And so I think my insurance would be like, nope, we're not gonna pay for this. And so, I mean, where am I gonna get the money? There's there's no money for me to go and pay for a medical bracelet that says I am bipolar or I have bipolar disorder. And <clears throat> I just, I can't imagine it being a cost-effective expense or, or even an expense that I or many of my peers could pay for. So, well, one of the things, you know, you're, you're right. It's kind of nice, you know, with the medical part there, you know, if you have someone who's diabetic, you have a better idea. Okay. If they're you know, doing this, maybe they need some insulin. Maybe they don't. Um, but a medical, a medical uh, disease is much different than a mental disease. It, it doesn't have the same stigma. And so, you know, when I was not, when I was, I mean, I'm perfectly open about this. I will talk to this about any, with anybody. In fact, sometimes I'll pin people down going, you're going to listen to a bunch <laughs> of stories. You don't know me, but it's a, which is an exaggeration, but even just putting on a, not a specific one, but something that does say bipolar on it, or, you know, just something that says schizophrenic, that is going to be incredibly uncomfortable to, to me. Even now I probably would have a bit of a difficulty with it. Uh, just because <clears throat> there are stigmas associated with mental illness that you do not get with a medical, uh, you know, just no one's going to be really embarrassed about having cancer. And so, you know, embarrassment, I don't think is enough of a magnitude for, for really how it feels. So I, I think you would have a tough okay. time getting people to do it. Okay. Okay. And Commander Wait, Soto, well, Matt Tinier with APD. Um, you know, yep. Niels and I, we make uh, actual ID cards for people that have a disability. That it's, you know, in the front has their information, on the back has tips on how to communicate with them. Yeah. And right, we've offered it up to the screen here. Well, he can't even Much see better it. But, uh, well, he can't see it, but then we, everybody else can see it. The, the biggest concern that I have seen from people <laughs> is they don't want to feel like they're a card-carrying member of their illness. So that's the yeah. card, and, and on so, the back it has information. And so, and so a lot of things that, that we've noticed that, that go, or the majority of people, it seems like that are reaching out for them is a lot of family members looking for their children with uh, autism or people with kind of severe developmental disabilities, it seems like are looking for these cards. 
Um, but I agree with you 100% that if there was some way to kind of notify a first responder that someone is living with a mental illness, we would approach the situation different. I think we would do the same as in law enforcement. I think we would look at it differently. But that is a Correct. great thing to, right. to try to look at. Well, you know, having something like that available, I mean, if you can do things, I mean, I would carry one of those. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, it, I mean, just having it available is not a bad idea. Make one. So, so. Ray Minus with the Coast Unit. So one of the, the, the greatest things that I've noticed whenever I've been out there also is that if you just ask questions, uh, generally um, the individual is going to give you an understanding of what's going on with them, depending on, you know, how severely manic they are or how severely delusional they are possibly in a schizophrenic uh, state but uh, for the most part if you you know ask the individuals you know whether or not they have a mental illness they can pretty much uh, give you an understanding of what's going on with them whether it's mental illness or whether it's a medical <clears throat> emergency so um, that's the biggest thing that um, I found to work is just you know communicating with the individual and saying hey you know uh, today, it seems like you're, you know, having a bad day, you know, what's going on? Uh, is there something, you know, going on that we should know about? Uh, you know, just asking questions to um, actually get them talking about what's going on. And then eventually you'll find out, uh, you know, whether it's a mental illness or a medical emergency. Um, I found that to be the greatest uh, uh, resource um, is just communicating with the individual. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would work. <laughs> <laughs> and that just it, before we wrap up, just one last thing. There's also things called advanced directives. So people, right. when they're, uh, if they have a mental illness, they while they're feeling very good uh, or stable, they can write up a, a sort of a contract for who makes decisions if they start to become psychotic or lose touch with reality. So those are good things. And asking collateral information is always probably very, very important. Does anyone else on the network have a question for these guys? I had just two follow-up questions because I know that this was about perspectives and some of the things that came up. And the first one is for Rosma. When you were, you, you know, you talked about a few times where you wanted to kill yourself. If an officer is to, to ask you about suicide, do you feel like it's better if they ask, do you want to hurt yourself or do you want to kill yourself? And does it make a difference with how they ask? Um, I guess it just makes a difference on how they approach the matter. Um, if they ask in an easygoing voice instead of a demanding, like, are you going to kill yourself? You're, it's against the law. I'm so angry you're going to kill yourself. You know, if someone went to that, if anyone went up to me like that, I'd be like, bye. Have a nice life without me. Um, but, uh, uh Honestly, most times I've just turned myself into the hospital. I've just been like, yo, it's time for hospitalization. I'm going to hospitalize myself because I've been ill for so long. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, I guess the worst time was when I was in high school and kids were bullying me and stuff. Um, uh, I guess one friend finally just asked me, you know, what are you going to do, Rosma? And I said, well, I have this very plain, detailed plan. I'm gonna take all of my segments that I have and then I'm gonna sit in the water and I'm gonna cut my wrist the right way and then I'm gonna put a blow dryer in the water and one of those is sure to kill me. Um, <laughs> one of those things is sure to kill me. I'm, I'm very sure of this. Um, but uh, 
just asking me like what's up Rosma instead of you know um uh asking me if I'm gonna hurt myself instead of kill myself is probably better but it doesn't I, I will be very upfront about things because I have been dealing with mental illness for so long and I just I figured out pretty early on that I had to say what I needed in order to survive all right no thank you for that my next one is actually, I have a question for you, Steve, if you could follow up on. You were talking about when you're in really manic and, and in that phase that you kind of black out. Is it, is every time that, that you become manic that you just don't remember those incidents or what is it like to be blackout or, or if you can tell more about that? Well, you know, it's not necessarily a blackout where it's just, you know, all sensory input and I can't remember anything. It's more that my perception at that time is very delusional. And uh, when I come back to a place, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I, I can get up here psychotic, whatever, and uh, just things are going on. And uh, um, it is such a messed up perception that when I try to look at it later uh, in a memory, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And so, uh, what was that part of your question? Well, no, just because you uh, just wanted to know more about what it was like. You know, I don't really hear many people talk about blacking out on that because of an a illness like this. Yeah, it's, again, it's not a blackout, really. It's, it's not where, you know, all of a sudden I don't remember stuff. Like, you know, I've been on a big drinking bender and I don't remember any of it. And no, it, it's really that where my, my reality at that point when I'm that psychotic, when I'm that delusional, doesn't make sense to me when I start, you know, and start going, oh, you know, I'm feeling better again. And, you know, things are going cool. So that blackout's not the right uh, analogy. It's, it's okay. mostly just confusion, trying to analyze what happened previously. I I actually have blacked out. Um, in 2014, I blacked out from a med. Um, it was med reaction, and I was taking the med as prescribed, and I blacked out for a whole week. I don't remember one thing from that week. Wow. And, um, and then after that week, um, I apparently hadn't been sleeping. I've been told I didn't sleep that much that weekend. So they, after that weekend, they brought me down. I went to the hospital. I was like, oh, I don't remember that week at all. People tell me what I did. I'm like, what? I did that? <laughs> <Yeah>. Really? <laughs> Interesting. Does anyone else have a question for them? 